Welcome to Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Jill Gleba, and we're talking to inspirational, common, and imperfect people just trying their best and trying to gain some uncommon sense. What are the biggest mistakes we make when completing our estate plan? Pamela has stories. I learned that estate planning has two parts, pre- and post-planning. Sometimes estate plans are valuable while you're alive and well, as well as when you pass. Listening to this podcast before you complete or update your will and trust, I'm sure it will help you make thoughtful choices. Today we have a special guest. It's Pamela Mack. She's the principal attorney with the Mack Group. She has a firm that helps business owners and families with their estate planning and business transactions. And I thought it'd be interesting today that we chat about all the mistakes that people make with their estate planning, just everyday mistakes. And maybe this will help you or motivate you to do the right thing and at least get a plan done. I want to give you a a special instructions here is not to take our advice today and just go do it. I always said, and I said through the book, you need to find a professional and talk over your situation with them. But today, by talking about the different mistakes people make, it will motivate you and say, wow, I don't want that to happen to me. And that will motivate you to go out and do uh, an estate plan for yourself, or at least correct the one you might have. So thank you for coming. I appreciate that you're here. Oh, Jill, I'm so delighted to join you and So excited about your new book and your new podcast. I'm just really excited to be here. Thank you. And we're here to help. So this is why we are recording this podcast. I am on the financial side. I'm not an attorney, but I will say that we often over the years had clients come in and they didn't even have a plan at all. We have people that are parents that didn't assign guardians. You have people that are older that... They didn't choose what child to help them with their state plan. They didn't have any, you know, all that's going to do is promote fighting and discourse and unrest throughout a family. So I probably prompted too much, but I, in my opinion, I think the first thing I see, the biggest estate planning mistake is just not doing anything at all, right? Sure. And it's totally understandable, right? So no one thinks that their time is going to Come draw near. (laughs) No one wants to think about those things, right? Right. And I do think that the pandemic really sort of raised our awareness that anytime, anyplace, something can happen. And again, you know, Jill, most people think about estate planning is what's going to happen after I die, right? What am I going to do with my assets after I die? Uh, When clients come into our office, we tell them that estate planning is really in two parts. It's the pre-death planning and the post-death planning, that is what creates an estate plan. And here, here is what we share. The pre-death planning looks like, who's going to take care of me if I cannot take care of myself, right? We all think we're going to be young and active or at least vibrant and active, you know, through the end of our life. But anything can happen. Accidents happen. Pandemics happen. And I think The important thing is to have someone, and we talk to people about the importance of having someone that can step into your shoes in the event you're not able to. It could be temporarily or it could be permanently to say, okay, this is my person, Uh, rather than to have the court assign the person. Because if you don't decide who that person is, maybe to handle your financial affairs through a power of attorney, 
someone has to make that decision. Well, you made a good point just then. I was thinking of estate planning for my parents. And when you said temporarily, uh, think about this. Sometimes you get into an accident and you need rehabilitation. You just need someone to take care of the bills and your home and things temporarily just for a few months. So this discussion isn't just for older people. It's for anybody, right? It's for anyone. In particular, Jill, I think you mentioned earlier that our law firm represents business owners and we represent business owners and their families. And what I always share with business owners, and you know, there are lots of solos out there. Mm -hmm. You know, we are in a time when many, many people are launching businesses and growing them quite successfully. I think what most do not think about is, you know, even those that are married, they don't think that if something, an accident, temporary disability, where they're unable to manage their own affairs, um, they think, well, someone else will be able, well, who is that someone else? The business entity is a totally separate entity. Husbands can come in and take it over. If something happens to me as the partner at our law firm, no one's going to be able to come in and, and take over, manage our affairs, unless I assign someone to that role. It's a really important decision. Um, it's a key decision that business owners need to think about. And just individuals you know, generally should be thinking, okay, so if I were out temporarily, who is the best person? And I, I think it comes down to choice, too. Who is that best person? There are lots of people who are around us, family members, close friends. But who is that person that has the competency to be able to come in and manage financial affairs for someone else? So we always talk about that. And then we talk about what happens in the hospital room when decisions have to be made and who is in a position to make them. Physicians don't like to be in the middle of family members, right? So we talk to our clients about selecting the people who are the best suited to make those decisions. So you might think as a mother of three children that they get along great. Let them all make the decision. Good luck with that. Good luck with that, right? We have these conversations all the time. These conversations absolutely should be had. You know your children better than anyone. Generally speaking, you know your children, you know their personalities. There are those children that are totally reliable and good taking care of financial affairs, but would have a very difficult time making a end-of-life type decision. So we talk through that. People think, well, you know, how are my kids going to feel if I don't put them all on, you know, assign them all? I don't want them to think that one is better than the other. And I always say to them, These are decisions you have to know your children or the people around you and who are best suited for which roles. So we talk about that a lot. And I agree with that. I um, have five siblings. And when my dad was putting everything together, uh, he said, let's just have you make all the decisions, get everything done. We don't need to ask six people to agree on something. And that was well said. The other thing, just as a funny note, I sat down with my husband and I sat down with our kids and said, look, this is where the state plan is. This is what we're doing. Here's all our passwords. Here's all our information. And we talked about pulling the plug. And my daughter, we said, do you think you can do that? Because that's what we want, you know, for a vegetable or what have you. And she said, do I have to actually pull the plug? I said, 
No, you just tell the doctors to do it. And she goes, oh, yeah, I could do that. And I said, wow, you said that way too fast. <laughs> but but I, I make light of it. But the truth is, it's pretty serious stuff. And you really do need to talk to whoever it is that you choose, your person. You have to have a nice conversation with them and say, this is what I want, right? You do. And in Michigan, they're required to sign off on their roles, right? They're required under a financial power of attorney to, you know, acknowledge their responsibilities and that they are fiduciaries, meaning that they do not act in their own best interest, but they're acting on behalf. So a power of attorney, you are an agent. You have a stepped up responsibility, which Jill, let's just talk about this for a yeah. minute, okay? I have had so many instances of people who are financial powers of attorneys for their parents or for another person, and they feel like those assets are theirs to do what they want to do with them. I have seen it so many times where it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to write this check to myself. I'm the fiduciary, and I know it's the sort of thing that makes your hair stand up on end. But a huge mistake that I see people make, even though they are required to sign off on their duties that say that you are acting as a fiduciary, you're acting in the best interest of the person for whom you're acting on behalf of, I can tell you, I see all the time where they just don't do that. They simply view this person's money as their additional checking account, and it can result in penalties. So, I mean, that brings us back full circle to the discussion of who is the best person with the best character to handle your financial affairs if you're not able to. The other thing is, again, not having that plan. What happens if you don't have a financial power of attorney? I'll tell you, the uncle that you don't like is going to inherit all the money and the people that you least want to take care of your children will be the ones in charge. So... You should take charge. Yeah. So again, it's one of those things where planning for what might take place during your lifetime and what will certainly have to take place after your death is really important. And I think our approach is a conversation like, let's talk about all the people around you. Who's best suited for their roles? You know, the same person doesn't have to do everything. That person who might be financially uh, sophisticated able to take care of their own, you know, the affairs, not tempted to dig into yours would be the best person to serve as a financial power of attorney in the event that you're not able to. And then that person who is best suited to be able to be level-headed and to exact the decisions that you need to have exacted in that in those very difficult times in the hospital room could be a totally different person. I'll give you an, an story. I represented a woman who has four daughters, all with very different personalities, but she felt very strongly that the oldest daughter should be the one that would be in the position to make the life or death decisions based on what she wanted in the hospital setting. When it was time for her to meet with her daughter and to share with her the plan and to let her know that she was assigned to that role, that daughter started crying. She wasn't even in the hospital room. This was, she was, she just, so, I mean, that just goes to show you, like, you seriously need to think about, like, who that daughter was, even though she was the oldest and the one that was most around, 
she would have a very difficult time making that decision. She couldn't put her cat down. So why and why do that to her? Not to be rude, but why do that to her? If maybe another daughter might be better equipped, why put that big decision on her that would make her feel horrible, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I had a client that, it's a sad, the mom passed away. There was explicit instructions that she didn't never wanted to be on life support. That just wasn't something she did not want for various reasons. And the daughter kept her on life support, moved into her home, put the hospital bed right in the middle of the living room. I remember visiting and I could see in the mom's eyes looking at me like, get me out of this. You know, she just hated every minute of it. Um, maybe I'm imagining that, honestly. Maybe I was just upset because I knew what her wishes were. And obviously she picked the wrong person because that person did not fulfill her wishes. They fulfilled their, their wishes. wishes. Yeah, exactly. And so that's one of the things you want to make certain that you, you know, carefully consider. And the role, honestly, the role of counsel is not to get you documents, right? Everybody feels much better when they leave the, the lawyer's office with that nice binder. They breathe a sigh of relief. They feel like, okay, I've done the things that I need to do to take care of my family, because that's really what we're doing, right? Right. We're taking care of the people that we love during the critical times, right? But there should be conversations had, oh, not just paper. Yeah. And we call ourselves the nosy lawyers, right? Because <laughs> we mind your business and your legacy. But, you know, as a good attorney, when you have these conversations, you're trying to dig into things that may be uncomfortable to have discussions about, but are absolutely necessary. And Jill, of course, you know this because, you know, when people talk about finances, sometimes it gets very uncomfortable. It's very personal. It's very personal. Uh, what we try and express when we're having these conversations is we want to get you the plan that works best for your family. So the pre-death side of things absolutely needs to take place. You need to prepare for it because dementia happens. Once, and I can tell you, once people start to experience some mental diminished capacity, it's very difficult to draft their plans at that time. Let me give you an example. I have a client that I am meeting today and uh, siblings with a father who is in end stage of a cancer and they don't know how long. He's cognizant, but he's in a hospice, right? And so they need to do emergency planning because they want to make certain, you know, probate avoidance is a huge, huge issue because, you know, again, estates can be tied up in court for months and months and sometimes years. Wow. Very small estates can be tied up. And so he wants his estate wrapped up and taken care of at this critical like juncture. Now. Yeah. Like now. Like yesterday. Right? So my question and the question that every lawyer has to ask at this time is, what is their capacity? Can they make these decisions? And they are often you know, decisions that have to be made under really difficult situations, under, you know, with a Zoom meeting, and you, you've got to try and determine capacity. Right. And what I've shared with siblings, and I also will share with your audience, is that even though you reach out to us, our client is the dad, is the mom, is the person who we are serving, right? Yeah, and do they have the ability? And do they still have the capacity? So say they have the capacity today. I talk to you today, and you're like, this is what I want. This is how I want my life to go. And this is how I want my assets to be divided. Once those papers are drafted, 
we have to come back to you and ask you, do you know what you're signing after you, you know? So it's all along the process. So you'll pay us in the beginning. We'll draft those plans. And if that person loses capacity or passes away during that time, those papers are no good. So that's when we get a lot of calls like, okay, mom or dad is at this end stage. If they do not have capacity or if they are experiencing dementia, some level of dementia or Alzheimer's where they can talk to you about what's going on right now. But when they get ready to sign those papers, if they don't remember, you know, that brings about all kinds of issues that attorneys grapple with and have to. For us, we say that's not a case that we're comfortable with taking because then you get challenges. So the time to do it. And what I found, Jill, over the pandemic is that for some reason, I actually looked this up in a medical study. People started to experience dementia and those diminished capacity much faster during the lockdown. So someone, you know, vibrant, lively before the pandemic went into, you know, lockdown during the pandemic without friends, family, for whatever reason, immediately started to experience some diminished capacity. Um, If you don't have the right documents in place to deal with that, I can't help you at that point. We can't even get a good plan together. You have to even go to the court to get guardianship over that person to manage that person's affairs. You has to get guardianship or conservatorship, guardianship to manage their person, conservatorship to manage their affairs. I'll share with you a story of a couple, a husband, he'd always managed the financial affairs. Both of them had really good careers, very successful, had retired. Uh, this gentleman started to experience some dementia with uh, psychosis during the pandemic. And the husband and wife did not have an estate plan. She did not have a financial power of attorney for him, and he did not have one for her. Well, many of the assets were held, you know, jointly in his name. He was managing the stocks and things. They, you know, she was the beneficiary, but that's just kind of how it worked. You know, it wasn't any issue until the pandemic hit and he started to experience psychosis. So she was like, okay, I don't have the authority to even manage the assets that belong to this household. And he refused to allow her to handle it. And so she said, well, let's get my son. We'll get our son to handle it. You trust him. Because he started to become paranoid. And so we'll get our son. Son's very successful, has his own family, no issues with, you know, anything. It was only son. He refused. And so $10,000 later, court battle just to get someone. She had to go to court just to be able to have access so he's the kind of thing. He wasn't himself. He, he wasn't himself. Obviously, and he so, didn't want his own family to manage the money. Exactly. That's a problem. That's it's a big a problem. problem. And so, again, just underscores that pre-death planning side of things, you know, that most people don't think about when they come into an attorney's office. And you started to say people love that binder. They get it done. They march out of the office feeling relieved. But we're not done yet, right? We're not done <laughs> We're not done. We're not done. And, and and you and I are in agreement here. That's something I saw a lot. I'd have a client come into our office and say, hey, yeah, yeah, I have a trust and I have a will and everything's done. And I said, really, I don't see any indication of that on any of your assets. I don't see any of your assets titled in your trust or going to your trust. So you've got an empty container there. And you had a nice analogy that you brought up earlier. 
Yeah, Jill. So when we talk to our clients about trust, and trust are not suitable for everyone, right? But for those where they really are concerned about probate avoidance and they really want to manage their assets in an orderly way that, you know, maybe a legacy for, you know, to hold the assets and trust for young or, you know, adult children. So sometimes we will recommend a trust to hold assets. But when we talk to our clients about trust, we tell them a trust, when you come to us to create a trust for you, it is like hiring an architect and a builder to build you a beautiful house, right? In the same way, a house to make it livable has to have furniture. You have to move things into the house, right? In the same way, a trust has to have assets to make it basically do what you want it to do. And so what we find is that most attorneys will give someone instructions and tell them, look, we've created this trust for you, but there are some things that you need to do to get some assets into the trust. You need to go to your financial planner, you know, financial advisor in you know, retitle some accounts or, you know, name the trust as a beneficiary. They're all classes. They're like a number of classes of assets that you have to get into that trust. We give them very, you know, some attorneys, we used to do it too. We no longer do it. Give them very specific instructions and we tell them to go have this done. The reason we no longer do it, Jill, is because we're finding that our clients, no matter how much we tell them, and then we send the reminders They just feel that relief. They, in their minds, think we have a trust, we avoid probate, right? And I'm going to share with you. Yeah. More often than not, people come in, they say they have a will and trust, and they don't do the homework. So what they've done is they've bought themselves a trip to the probate court, which they wanted to avoid in the first place, right? Uh, What they do is all the assets that do not find their way into trust have to go under the will into probate, right? So you take that will that the attorney also creates, you go to court and you say, all of these assets, judge, when we're done with this process, please pour them over and put them into the trust. Now, you have double paid. Uh Not only did you pay for the plan, but you paid for an attorney to deal with the assets that should have gotten in the plan during your lifetime. So we tell them, we are going to work with you to make sure that this gets done. Even for someone who doesn't have a trust, say their asset profile is too small, you know, single mom or a widow who only has an adult child, right? A limited number of assets. Well, we'll work with them to create a plan that works for them and we'll change some beneficiaries uh, we'll deal with probably is the biggest asset, which is houses, right? Well, that will lead us into another discussion, right, Dale? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll take care of that so that at death, it just goes directly to that person. And there are ways to accomplish that again, right? For a modest estate, it avoids probate. But what you don't want to do, and a lot of people do, they come in, oh, you know, we don't need a plan. I just put my child jointly on my account. Mm. So you can talk about that, Jill. Yes, you shouldn't just pop your name on your parents' accounts because now, um, and I'm going to give an amateur response, but now you're responsible for their assets. If you ever were sued or went through a divorce, they can go after those assets. So I see a lot of that. So yeah, let's talk about that. 
Yeah, you mentioned uh, several of the first uh, reasons that we share in our blog why they should not put uh, their kids jointly. As people get older, we totally understand that. As you get older, you need someone to help you a lot of times, help you with your accounts. So it is very easy to go to the bank, designate that oldest child or whoever is closest to you. I'm going to put them joint on my account. And here's the understanding, right? That if anything happens to me, they'll be good to their siblings and they understand that they're going to divide the assets between the four. That's their estate plan, right? That's what they intend. Like I've got $50,000 or $60,000 in here divided equally between my three kids, but I just have my oldest on the account because they're helping me to pay my bills. That to me is could be conflict. Not only is it conflict, but if I'm joint with you and I have the right of survivorship on that account, that $60,000 when you die, it belongs to me and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to share that with my siblings. And oftentimes people don't, right? Unless they're just nice. That is not an estate plan. Uh, the second issue that a lot of people don't think about those, especially with young children or teenage children that are uh, applying for student loans, right? If you are joint on an account with mom and dad, they've got a substantial sum in that account and you're joint on it, those assets are attributable to you. Therefore, when your child is applying for student loans or applying for grants, that is going to count against you. Oh, wow. Most people don't think about that. Another issue is those assets become subject to creditors. If your name is on an account as a joint owner, then everything in that account belongs to you wholly, just as it does the other joint owner. So creditors can get to it. People don't think about this in a divorce. If you, daughter, are on your parents' account as joint or mom or dad's account as a joint owner, those assets are subject to a divorce decree or a divorce settlement because they are your assets. I've mm -hmm. seen that happen more times than I want to admit Yeah, because we work with divorce attorneys and they'll call us about different things. And this happens more than I care to even admit. Right. And people just, they just don't know. They just don't know better, honestly. They that don't. It'll lead into a discussion then, Jill, of the house. A lot of parents, for probate avoidance reasons, will want to, especially those widowed parents, right, that are now alone, and they don't want their kids to have to fight. You know, it could be a house subject to a mortgage. And so they'll say, I don't need an estate plan because the biggest asset that I own, I quit claim deed it to me and my daughter. And so daughter, son, whatever, kid yeah. will get the asset at my death. So there are tax consequences to that that you absolutely need to be mindful of. Because again, by the time the parent is giving you this house, probably have a lot of equity in that house. That's right. right. They got a lot of equity in it. And if you're taking it over time, you know, you got that house, there potentially be some tax consequences. There are better ways to do it. There are certainly better ways to avoid probate court other than to put someone in joint ownership. And again, your biggest asset now becomes subject to creditors. And you're teaching us something here is it's not the solution we're giving right now in the podcast. It's the fact that a lot of things can go wrong because you simply didn't know better. 
So you have all these really good intentions. You know, I'm just going to put my kids on the house. I'm going to put my kids in the assets. I'm going to have it all settled. You know, and when it, when someone talks about an estate plan, oh, I'm all set. No, you're not. Uh, the things you think are going to happen probably won't. And it's simply a conversation, even just a conversation with a professional of this is what I did and will this work and what could happen. And even just have that conversation. And if the attorney says, well, this, this, and this can happen, and that's not to your satisfaction, um, there's your prompt. Exactly. There's your prompt. Because you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And even if you think you know about estate planning, that's always funny to me. The people that think they know a lot, to me, are the ones that get into trouble. You're really better off trusting a professional and realizing that you didn't go get your law degree and you're not studying estate planning. Or, you know, when I talk to people about even financial planning, you know, oh, I can do this myself and I can't tell you how many people come in and we're fixing things because they just didn't know better. You know, we're studying this several hours a week. We go into situations, you look up different laws. Laws change too, right? Yeah, a lot of things happen and you have more taxes. Um, A sibling can keep all the money. And I want to share the story that I've had more, I think half dozen at least of this situation, but I'll share just two. Is one is it was three or four siblings the parents die. It was a cottage, and all four siblings inherited the cottage. Yet one of them went up there and just moved there. They lived there. I said, "So, but you all own it." She says, "Oh yeah, but they can come up any time and visit." Well, you talk to the other siblings, and they said, "We don't want to visit the cottage while you're living there. You shouldn't live there. This is for all of us to enjoy." And you know, I talked to them about having a schedule. You pick a number, then every year, everybody picks a week at a time till all the weeks are exhausted. But here's the problem. The parents left it to all four siblings. That person has every right to live there because they're a part owner, and they don't want to cooperate with the other three. There's nothing they can do. And this is the same situation, so I'll kind of lump them together, but same situation, but a house, not a cottage. And the sibling lived in that house with the parents before the parents died. And the parents die, they live there, and now the other siblings want the person living there to buy them out so they can have their money and walk away. Um, Yet the sibling that lives in the house doesn't have the money to buy out the other two siblings. So they're living there, and they all own the house together, but you have one sibling living there and taking over, and now you have all this family strife that could have been avoided, right? Absolutely, Jill. People are very well-meaning, and again, that's where having the conversation with counsel about your goals is very important because when individuals, and a lot of the people that I represent, they have Midas estates, right? And I tell them, okay, I'm going to paint the picture for you as to what this will look like. So you're leaving this house that's fully paid for to your four children. Now, what happens if the roof needs repair, what happens if you need to replace all the pipes or there needs to be new wiring or what happens when the taxes have to be paid? Who's paying the insurance? Let's talk about all of this stuff. You've got a modest estate, right? You've given them the house, but you've not given them anything to take care of the upkeep and maintenance on the house. You have to have a nice size estate 
to perpetually or for the lifetime of your children actually take care of those expenses. So you say, well, they'll come together. What if they don't? What if one of the siblings don't have enough money? So the average family isn't rolling in the dough, okay? So they're inheriting a house, and I don't know if most want to walk away with their portion, but if they choose to keep it, now you need an operational agreement or something to say, okay, we're all going to pitch in money, it's going to go in this bank account, and we're going to take care of the place. Yeah, and then what happens if there's a dispute? What happens if three want, but one does not, one cannot? How do you resolve that? And what I find is that having these conversations are very enlightening because, you know, listen, parents, they work very hard and they're working for their children for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. And they say, hey, when I pass away, I want to give them something. I want to give them my biggest asset, the thing that I want to remain in the family, especially the cottages, right? The law books are filled with cottage cases, right? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think parents are shocked. And I'll let you go on. I'm no, sorry. No, but but I think parents are shocked because they have in their head what they want to give to their kids. And some of them are like, we don't, we don't even want, want it. We don't want that. Yeah, we don't want those, that China cabinet set. We don't want it yeah. to, you know, uh, which is a big problem that consigners are now dealing with. But, yeah, I mean, you're very well-meaning. But And I find that most people are entirely reasonable. When you talk, so it's more than, again, coming to the attorney's office for them to give you documents, is to have a conversation about your life, is to have a conversation about the thing that you desperately want us to do, you most want to do. My job is to tell you what that looks like. And how to solve it. Yeah, to paint that picture. You know, we'd love to leave this house for your children, but what happens you know, four or five years later, what if they don't agree you're buying a dispute? Is that what you want? You know the dynamics of your children. And many times what will happen is they'll say, oh, I never thought about that. No, put the house on the market. Let's make it easy for the kids to put the house on the market and sell it immediately. Divide the proceeds and then we'll be done. There won't be this perpetual house that may be falling apart in several years that you thought you were going to leave to people and you're just leaving them a headache. And if they can't all agree, then you bought them a, a, a lawsuit. The other thing is, I think as parents, you and I are both parents, you know, when you talk to your kids and you find out they don't want, I mean, you have wishes, but they, they're like, no, I don't, I don't want to inherit the house. I just want life simple. It might be a setback for the parents because they had in their head what they were going to do, but the conversation is enlightening because you find out that they just want the easy way sometimes. And it makes it easier for you, too. And you're like, oh, OK. And it, it, sometimes it's a relief. Sometimes it might, you know, it's not the idea that you had in mind. But that's OK, because let's face it, you and I, you're doing estate plannings. We help people with their money. It's very emotional. And sometimes emotions get in the way of just doing something practical. Yeah. You know, you have this big idea of leaving something that's not all that important to the kids. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. And you don't always know what's going on with your kids either. You don't always know what's going on in their financial situations, in their household. You may be buying them trouble with your estate. I think uh, a part of, of estate planning is having a conversation with your family members, right? You don't always have to share. And I always tell my clients, we have family meetings 
Post doing the estate plan, we will host a family meeting. And in that meeting, we really want the fiduciaries. I think, Jill, you had mentioned that if you go on vacation, you're telling your kids where things are, where they can find things, right? Because that's orderly, right? You don't want them to have to scramble for documents or for anything if something happens to you. You want them to know. And so in the same since what we found over the years is that our clients, their fiduciaries didn't even know where things were, oh. didn't know what their roles were. They signed the documents, sent them back in. Again, that paper that we feel really good for, they signed. They don't know what they signed up for. They'll, you know, sometimes you'll assign someone to be the trustee, the successor trustee for you. And they'll say, sure, I'll do it. And they sign the paper. You know, they, they say, OK, they acknowledge and or the financial power of attorney. And then when the time comes, they don't even know where to find the documents. Oh, wow. They don't know. So what we have started to implement are family meetings. And in the family meeting, we bring in the financial advisors. We bring in the people who are the fiduciaries, right? The people who have to assume roles. And then we bring in trusted family members, whoever the you know client feels is appropriate to be in that meeting. Uh, we don't have to talk about what exactly is in the plan in terms of assets. At that point, what we're talking about is the fact that there is a plan. This is where the plan can be found. Here are where the documents are located. These are the roles. If something happens to mom or dad or whoever's plan it is, you can find the power of attorney in this place and you can take that and operate, you know, move and tell them what they can do with it. Like most people don't know. I mean, you and I exchange these terms like there's nothing like power of attorney, drugs, yeah, bills, yeah. you know, personal representative, agent. People don't know what that means. They don't know what exactly it means. And you brought up another really good point is we have family meetings, too. And the biggest on our side, you might you might agree, biggest issues. Is they're like, I don't want my kids to know how much money I have. And I said, oh, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to talk about the roles and the responsibilities. We're not going to talk about your assets at all. If you want it to be none of their business, it's none of their business. That's a great point. And that's exactly what we share. Our role as counsel is to share as little or as much as you want to share. Most people want to keep their financial situation private, right? They don't want to share assets. They don't want people to know, except we had um, in a podcast and this woman was taking care of her mom, and it was temporary situation. She mm-hmm. um, fell, and she was in rehab. So I have mixed messages here because her mother had a hundred grand in credit card debt, mm-hmm. and so they had no idea. And she had to help straighten all that out and fix it all up. So on the other side of my mouth, I'm telling people, "Your parents say everything's fine," and I I kind of tell them, "You know what? Is it? <laughs> you need to know. Are they paying their bills? Is everything getting taken care of?" So I guess. There's always a back and forth, right, in life? Sure, there absolutely is. And where that becomes critical is where you think there might be, look, they're under no obligation to tell you what's going on with them, right? right? They can be right. financial debt, right? Yeah. They can be in as much debt as they want to. They're under no obligation. Unless you are a co-signer on something, then that does not become your problem as as the, you, of course, you're concerned. You're like, oh, my gosh, are they going to come take my, you know, my mom's house? That's where the other side of the equation. You're right. Then, yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're under no obligation to tell you about how much assets they have or how much debt. Sometimes you are 
the one that has to come in and clean up the mess if they become incapacitated or where it does become an issue if you're the financial power of attorney, if you see that that debt that they're accumulating and the decisions that they're making is because of a diminished capacity sort of issue, then you need to know because you need to step in and be able to take over that to protect them from themselves. Right. Um, And there's embarrassment in many cases. The parents are embarrassed and they don't want to tell their kids because they're embarrassed. Exactly. Um, Exactly. We get a lot of people that are, well, we don't have all the assets we wish we did. That's okay. Nobody does. (laughs) Right. 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 But what's nice about this conversation is it's a conversation. And it's real life, too. Yeah. People live real lives every day. There's nothing, and I always tell, you know, a lot of people just like you, because we're in, you know, again, personal information sort of uh, situation. People come in and they're automatically, you know, some of them come back and they're like, I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm at this stage and I only have a little, but what I want, what I have, I want to protect. And what I say to them is, yeah, just start somewhere. You're doing a great job because guess what? With this modest estate that you have, if your kids had to go to probate, it would all be gone. It would go to the attorneys, right? This little money that you have, this modest, and I don't say little, uh, this modest bank account that you have would have to go toward paying the attorney to go and deal with this at probate. And by the time it's all over, your estate is going to be almost not even worth going to court for. And that's a shame because the parents did save up the best they could. I I come from a family that didn't have a, a lot of money. And even leaving a little bit makes a big difference to some people, right? It so you it don't want that to all get absorbed at court. You don't. And it's yours, right? Mm-hmm. And so pay what you need to do. Take the necessary steps. You know, this is not language you're unfamiliar with. Take the necessary steps to preserve what you have. Whatever you have, you sent your kids to college, you've educated them, you raised them. You don't need to make any apologies coming to this office. That's right. Let's make sure that we preserve what you have. So it doesn't end up being, you know, I always tell the story of Prince and people can't relate because he had so much money. Prince, the entertainer. I, we've read a lot of this um, financial, um, I'm going to tell you in my professional magazines. He's uh, quite the example. And back in the day, it was um, Who Sings Unforgettable? Nat King Cole. Mm -hmm. I actually saw his daughter at a financial planning conference because he didn't have an estate either. So tell us about Prince. Wow. So he, you know, we know that he had a huge estate and he also has a catalog of music. He passed away without an estate plan. And yeah. when I tell you, so the numbers are staggering. I think the last time I looked, because I wrote a blog about this in 2020 or 2021, okay, the consultants and the attorneys had accumulated $165 million in fees. And the siblings that were all trying to get a portion of it because he did, he wasn't married, he didn't have children. I think his parents had predeceased him. And so he had six siblings various half, six assemblies that just wanted to divide the estate. But to even get to their portion, which was, I think it went on for about four or five years. Is it settled yet? It finally settled. But listen, they had to, the siblings had to sell 
basically the royalties off of any kind of proceeds that he would get from, you know, his catalog had to sell it to a company who bought them out. So $200 million later, some, I don't know, uh, of attorney fees that could have gone to the family members. That was even before the family members got anything. That's All of Ryan in itself, one of them died. So, you know, there. I mean, lest you feel out there alone that you don't have an estate plan, the guy, the young man that owned, I call him young man because he's in his 40s, uh, 41 when he passed away, that owned Zappos. Yes. Died without a will as well. He died, I think he died in a fire. And his estate, he was unmarried. His estate is now being, you know, they're battling it. Now they're going to fight over it and waste all these fees. all the fees. And so whether you have a large estate or a small estate, it's all, you know, attorneys are happy to jump in there, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and are you kidding me? And it wasn't just attorneys, accountants, people evaluate. I mean, it's just like everybody comes out a of big the mess. It's a big mess. Yeah. yeah. So there's our lesson to do something. And the people listening to this that do have, they did go to a state attorney. If you have the documents, but you didn't do anything else, you have more to do. If you have someone you love, I'm just going to say someone you love that when you uh, travel, go on vacation, or even before that, even whoever you see at holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, those are the people you need to talk to and tell them where all your stuff is, where all your passwords are, where everything is. I hope this prompts people to just have conversations with their kids and get started on things. Do you mind if I tell everybody where to reach you if they want to have a conversation with you? Absolutely. Yep. So it's Pamela Mack. It's the Mack Law Group. And the website is M-A-C-K-L-A-W-V-R-P.com. And you could just call her. That's easy. It's 248-562-6423. Pamela's easy to talk to. That's why I had you on the show. And she can help you out. And it's nice just to have a conversation with any professional. We're going to encourage everybody to do that. So thank you for being here and sharing some stories. It makes it a little more interesting and it it makes it better for people to understand how important this is. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me. I have enjoyed this time. I really have. Thanks for listening to Uncommon Sense. I'm Jill Gleba. For more stories and all the financial knowledge you wish somebody had taught you, you can find my book, Uncommon Sense, at jillgleba.com. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.